0: Scripture reading today is Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. It's on page 1118 in your pew Bibles. You can read along or it'll be on the screen as well. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was healed or was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to uh, the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. You bow your heads with me. Dear God, we just pray that your spirit would be present, Lord, throughout the service, that as we, as we just sang, Lord, we ask that you would show us your glory, that you would reveal yourself to us, and we know that the primary way in which you do that is through your word. And so we pray, Lord, that our, our hearts and our minds would be open and attentive to your presence revealing itself to us, God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I want you to, um, I'm going to give you two sentences. I want you to fill in the blank. In in your mind, you don't need to say this out loud, okay? Uh, Just say this to yourself. Ever since I became a blank, my life has not been the same. Right. Ever, Ever since I became a blank, my life has not been the same. Here's another one. Becoming a blank has changed my entire perspective on life. Now, for those of us who are, are believers, those of us who are Christians, um, some of us will will say, "Well, you know, that sounds a lot like the language of of conversion, right? That you know the, the, that that uh, when I became a Christian, my life ever since then my life has not been the same, or or becoming a Christian completely changed." My perspective on life has that sort of language of of conversion to it, doesn't it? But but I suspect that some of you might have filled in the blank with something else. So, for example, some of you might have said, ever since I became a mother, my life has not been the same. Becoming a mother has changed my entire perspective on life. Uh, Today, we're taking a break from our series called Barriers uh, to Belief. For the last several weeks, we have been going through this series called Barriers to Belief, where we have been looking at various barriers that people in our culture have to coming to faith in Christ. A lot of intellectual questions and barriers that hinder them from from embracing the faith. And we're going to pick it up again next week. We'll be looking at the issue of doubt, a series just called Doubt. And in particular, we're going to be looking at, at the barrier that some people have in terms of whether or not they can trust the Bible. And we're going to be looking to see, can, can I trust the Bible culturally? Can I trust the Bible scientifically? Can I trust the Bible historically? These kinds of questions. So we're going to, we're going to pick that up again next week. But today, uh, today we're, we're, we're taking a break uh, from that in, in honor of Mother's Day. Now, I, I, I don't always orient the teaching around various holidays. Um, I like to say that some churches follow the liturgical calendar, other churches follow the Hallmark calendar, uh, and we don't really follow either. To be honest, if I was going to really follow either one of those, I'd be more inclined to follow the liturgical calendar. My wife and I actually almost got involved in a church planning movement with the Anglican Church, uh, which is about as liturgical as you can get. If you can imagine me wearing a, a robe and collar and all that stuff. Although they're hip, though, because they have like like a, a robe, but they're all wearing converse. That's kind of like their, their stick, right? Anyway, so... So we almost went into the Anglican Church, and, and they're very—they would have followed the liturgical calendar. Uh, and, and some, and so you know, I'm, I would be more likely, for example, or more prone to preach a sermon on fasting during Lent than I might be to preach, a, a, you know, a Mother's Day sermon on Mother's Day, a Father's Day sermon on Father's Day. Uh, you know, call me call me traditional if you like, but on Easter, I'm more likely to preach on the resurrection of Jesus than on the Easter Bunny. I mean, sorry. Maybe that's hopelessly traditional, but I'm just more liturgical than I am, Hallmark. Uh, and in fact, I think it is worth noting that Anna Jarvis, I think was her name, who in the 20s, kind of got kind of spearheaded this movement to make Mother's Day uh, a national holiday. In her later years, she spent all of her efforts trying to get it removed from the calendar because she was just sickened by how over-commercialized it had become. This was in the 20s. I mean, I wonder what, what she might think now. But yeah, anyway, I, the, the reality is I have an exceptional mother and my wife, it never ceases to amaze me the way in which she pours out love for our children. So I'm certainly honored to honor uh, mothers through tying it in here a little bit. Now, some of you who were really excited about the Barriers to Belief series, um, I, I will tell you that this, this series or this sermon, you might see a sort of a spin off on the barriers to belief in, in, two, in two ways. Uh, now, this is going to get heavy here for a minute, but in two ways. First of all, one of the things that we're going to see in this passage is the importance of faith, the importance of faith in the life of a believer. And what we're going to see is, is uh, postmodernism kind of gets a bad rap in Christian circles, uh, but, but I actually believe that, that postmodernism has a lot to offer in that it actually vindicates the importance of faith in terms of, 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 a, of, a, of an acceptable way of approaching knowledge. It actually allows for, a, um, a, it, it sort of vindicates faith as a reasonable and even rational approach to, to knowledge. And so we're going to see that, that this is actually very important towards our approach for everything. Faith is very important in our approach to faith. Faith is important for faith, imagine that one. So that, that's the first one. And then, and then secondly, what we're going to see is, some of you may remember a message in the series on, on how many people in our culture think that Christianity is just really restrictive. That if you follow, you know, you become a Christian, now you've got to follow the teachings of Jesus and you've got to, you know, do all the things that the Bible says and, and there's this sense that why would I do that? That's incredibly restrictive. And one of the things that we saw a few weeks ago is that the Bible, the way in which the Bible restricts actually leads to freedom. It restricts only in the sense that it actually leads to freedom. And, and we're going to see, we're going to tie this together with Mother's Day. You guys are like, this is, this is great. Now, some of you may be wondering um, uh, what this has to do with, this passage has to do with Mother's Day. You're kind of wondering, Is this probably have not seen this passage at all on any sort of Mother's Day card. Uh, but we're, as we work through it, Eventually, you'll see how I'm going to try to tie this in. But we got to kind of work our way through this passage a little bit. So let me set the let me set the context here. <clears throat> so in Luke chapter one, two, and three, in, in Luke chapter one and two, uh, we get uh, sort of kind of the introduction to Jesus. And so we read about the infancy narratives, right? So we get all the Christmas Christmas narratives. We find these in in, in Luke chapter two, the nativity, and all that sort of thing. And then uh, and then in chapter three. It jumps ahead to when Jesus and John the Baptist are adults, and we read about uh, John the Baptist's ministry, and we read about him baptizing Jesus, and then at the beginning of chapter 4, we read of Jesus as an adult going into the desert for 40 days uh, as sort of a, you might say, a final preparatory stage before he embarks on his ministry, and then as we come to the passage we're in today, this is sort of like the launching of his ministry. As Luke Sets this out. This is Jesus sort of kind of launching his public ministry. And as we see here, he, he comes out guns blazing. I mean, he does not he does not beat around the bush. I don't know if that's the best image. But he, he comes out strong. And he, he comes on. And basically what he does is he reads this passage in Isaiah, which is, is a a famous passage that would have been read regularly in in the Jewish synagogue and would have been read regularly for centuries. And it's this passage that is talking about this time when God will send his anointed one, God will send his king to come to renew and to restore all things. That God will send this king, his Messiah, uh, who will come and restore uh, the fortunes of Israel, and of course, as we read in Isaiah, when God restores the, the fortunes of His people, it actually restores the fortunes for everybody in the world. It's 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 Him coming and claiming Himself as King over all things, and 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 then of course we read here He to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind. It's this this time when God would come and He would bring justice and He would bring righteousness into this into this world, and so Jesus reads this passage in Isaiah, and then he says, oh, uh, this is now fulfilled, and you're hearing. He says, I'm, I'm the one. I'm the one. And I think it's interesting what we find in this passage is that it, at first, they're, they're all excited about it, right? You see, they sort of celebrate Jesus. In verse 15, it talks about he taught in the synagogues, and everyone praised him. And, and then in verse, uh, let's see, in verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips, right? But, but then notice at the end of this whole passage, they're trying to kill him. Hmm. So they go from, from praising him and, and welcoming him and, and then they want to kill him. <clears throat> Why is that? Why is that? Well, we, we, we get a clue here. It starts here, I think, in, uh, in, in verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Now, what's going on here? But let me just kind of paint a picture of, I think, what's going on here. We need to realize that Jesus, when he launches his public ministry here, this, this reading from Isaiah and whatnot, he does this in Nazareth, which is his hometown. So you can sort of, a, kind of imagine what's going on here. Imagine Jesus reads this passage and basically says, I'm the one. I am the one that your parents and grandparents and their grandparents and their grandparents and their grandparents, I am the one that they have been longing for, hoping for, praying for, for centuries. I am the one that is going to come and renew and restore all things. And all they're thinking to themselves is, you know, didn't I have a locker next to him in gym class? Didn't, didn't we take chemistry together? I mean, this is, this is weird. I mean, isn't this Joseph's son? You see, I think a principle emerges here, and that is that familiarity inoculates. Familiarity inoculates. You see, um, they, they know just enough about Jesus to think they know the whole picture. They've been exposed to just enough of Jesus that they... Like, I know I know Jesus. I know who Jesus is. And what, what is this? Like, I know who Jesus is. You see, they, they don't believe that he is who he says he is. They're having, they're having difficulties believing that he really is the Messiah, the anointed one. Because, because, you see, they already have sort of these preconceived ideas about who he is. Their familiarity with him inoculates, and, and I would say that I think in our own culture something similar has happened. That the reality is is that in America, most people think they know what Christianity is about. Or they at least have some sense, some sort of an idea. They, 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 you know, they, they, maybe, they, maybe they grew up going to church, or maybe they had friends who were Christians, or or maybe they had friends who took them to church a few times or or you know maybe they remember going down the streets when it said merry christmas uh, up on the on the banners in in the town and and you know they they have they, been exposed to, they they know what it's all about and they know just enough i think some of us know just enough to think that we know what christianity is all about and and what ends up happening is a lot of people have a kind of very trite and even superficial understanding of what Christianity is all about. Some people, oh, yeah, Christianity, that's that whole get saved thing. Yeah, you, you know, that, you just you pray a prayer and you go to heaven when you die. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard that thing before. Or, oh, yeah, Christianity, that's that's the, uh, you know, you've you got to be, um, you know, you can't sleep around. You know, you're not supposed to do that. You know, you're not supposed to do that kind of thing. And, and you, gotta, you know, you gotta, you've got to be a good person. Yeah, I, I know what Christianity is, is all about. Oh yeah, Christianity, that's, you know, people they 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 go to church on Sunday mornings and they, they sit they sit in pews, you know, and, and they check their watches. You know, that's I know I I know what Christianity is all about. they have sort of a very, a very superficial understanding of, of what Christianity is. Or or some people some people even think, oh yeah, Christianity is really just it's really just a political movement, uh, sort of masked in spiritual language. So they, I know what Christianity is. It's like they know just enough, just enough to be innocuous. So, and that's kind of what's going on here. They, they, know, they know who Jesus is. They know enough about Jesus to not believe. They don't have faith. They have lack of faith. They don't believe that he really is who he says he is. So, so what, what do they do here? Well, see, Jesus, he can see this. right? He sees this doubt in, in their minds. And this is why he says in verse 20, he says, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, it, here's what you need to understand about the ancient world. In the ancient world, uh, medicine just it wasn't like what it is today. All right, not, not like we've got it all figured out now or anything, but, but believe me, it was, they, I mean, let's put it this way. If you walked back into the ancient world with a bar of soap, you would be like the greatest physician in the area. I mean, this is how little they knew or understood about germs and all of this kind of thing, right? So, so there is they, they kind of people knew that if you if you went to a doctor, you didn't necessarily know what you were getting. It was sometimes a mixed bag, right? So they you know they'd give you some sort of I, I don't you know, I don't know a lot about what they gave them, but you can imagine give them some sort of concoction and like yeah this is going to heal you, this is going to fix you, and they're a little bit skeptical of it. So what they what the saying this saying was physician heal yourself. In other words, if you want me to drink that, you drink it first. You try it first. Like, in other words, prove it to me. Prove it to me that, that, this is really, that this is really true. Prove it to me that you are who you say you are. And this is what Jesus is, is getting at. He, he's, he, he can tell what they want him to do is prove to them that he really is who he says that he is. And so what does he do? He, he goes on and he, and he makes reference to these two, these two Old Testament stories. The story of, of the Sidonian widow and the Syrian leper. And these two Old Testament stories. And if we, well, we don't have time to go back and look at them. But what we, what we would discover, if we went back and looked, what we would discover is that in both of these cases, um, these individuals, they demonstrated faith before they saw the power. They, they trusted to a certain degree. Naaman was kind of skeptical, actually. But he still kind of followed through. He, he trusted and and they trusted first before they they saw a demonstration of power and what Jesus is getting at is he's saying you see there's an important uh, an important lesson here is that and that is that when you follow God you see there's a port, an important sense in which faith comes before seeing and you see that's backwards to the way our our society thinks about things we want to see it to believe it we want to see it to believe it we want proof we want the evidence we you know nobody buys a car on faith. You want to drive it. You want to, you want to test drive it. You want to see it to believe it. And Jesus is is insinuating here actually there's an important dimension in which faith is actually the lens that allows you to see in the first place. And and we're going to say it's it's not like it's it's not like you throw out uh, any sort of objective inquiry or anything like that. We're gonna see, see that here. That they go hand in hand. But but there's an important sense in which faith is actually what enables you to see in the first place. And this this is actually where I was saying earlier that postmodernism gets a bad rap amongst Christians in Christian circles. But there's actually something important that that is emerging out of postmodernity that can actually bring us back to understanding why the Bible makes sense in the way it talks about certain things. And, and here's what it is. You see, in the modern world, in the modern world there sort of emerged this kind of way of thinking that there's, you know, there's objective truth and then there's subjective subjective truth. And the subjective truth is it's not really truth. It's just, you know, that's... And, and so, like, you have science, which is really objective, right? And, and that's where you can access truth. Um, and then you've got religion and faith. And that's for those sweet, kind of fluffy, artsy people who, you know, God bless them, they're really sweet. But it doesn't really, you know, it's, not, it's just for their emotions and all that kind of stuff. But you can't really know anything through that. So faith, to use, use the fancy word here, in modernity was seen as a second-rate epistemology. Epistemology is how do you know what you know. And and faith was sort of second rate. Well, yeah, whatever. That doesn't. We're objective, right? Well, what's been interesting is that in in post modernity, what, what has occurred is that people are beginning to realize that that all of this objective inquiry wasn't as objective as we thought it was. Thomas Kuhn is a, a philosopher of science who has demonstrated that when you look at scientific revolutions like the Copernican revolution or, or Einstein's revolution, that the, the sort of conver, the 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 transition and the way in which the academy switched over to these new paradigms really had more the character of conversion than, than some sort of clearly objective winning over of one over the other. It, 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 there was a sense of, of conversion that, was, that, that there was a sense in which it wasn't just a completely logical, rational deduction. It was sort of more of a, a conversion. And so what, he, what he's basically going on to saying is that actually every worldview depends on faith. Every worldview, religious or non-religious, they, they all have a degree in which they depend on faith. So I, I think post-modernity is like a late vindication for what we find in the Bible all the time. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That makes no sense to somebody who comes out of a modern worldview, but in post-modernity that begins to resonate. Now again, it's, it's not that all of a sudden it's all subjective and it's all blind faith. No, you see, it goes hand-in-hand hand with objective inquiry. In fact, this entire series that I've detoured from, but now I'm actually just kind of talking about it, this entire series that, I've, that we've been doing about barriers to belief has very much been about entertaining that, that need to understand objectively whether or not I can trust this. Is this stuff true? Does it make sense logically? Does it make sense rationally? Does it make sense historically? All of those kinds of questions. And, and so that's, that's important, but we need to realize that it's got to go hand-in-hand with faith, uh, to put it practically, let me just say this: I'm, I always tell people who maybe are struggling in their faith, or they just maybe they are Christians but they're doubting, or they don't believe but they're trying to pursue it. I always say that when you are pursuing God, you should pursue Him on two fronts. Pursue Him on two fronts. On, on one end, pursue certainly pursue the sort of objective, you know, can I trust the Bible, all that kind of stuff. That's good. You don't want to throw that stuff out. That's important. You want to, you want to address those questions and, and, and look, look for answers. Absolutely. But what I would say is don't wait until all of that's figured out to start praying. Don't wait until you have that all figured out. Go, go both. Right, like, pursue that, but also spend time just praying, praying to the God you're not even sure you believe in. Confessing your sin to the God you're not, even, you're not sure you believe in. Start reading the scriptures and, and, and start, start seeking because here's, here's the reality. At the heart of, of the Christian understanding of God is that, that we, we come to have a relationship with God. You come to have a relationship with God in many ways the same way you have a relationship with another person. And I think everybody who's ever gotten married knows something about getting married. And that is that, on one hand, it's not a good idea to get married on a whim. Like, you should probably do some objective analysis in terms of whether or not this actually makes sense or not. But on the other hand, everyone who's ever gotten married knows that there comes this point when you have to step out in faith. You you, you have to step out in faith. And and the same thing is true in our pursuit of God. Yes, absolutely, investigate these these questions and whatnot, but realize that, that faith is actually a primary way in which we come to know God. But, but that's not what they'll have here. They, they just want Jesus to, to prove everything to them. So Jesus highlights their lack of faith. They reject him because of their lack of faith. Now, something emerges closely related to this uh, as well. They reject him because of their lack of faith, and they also reject him because of a a corollary, uh, something that emerges as sort of a a corollary point to this. And what they're realizing is that Jesus is, is, well, he seems to be changing the terms by which a person demonstrates that they are a member of God's people. He seems to be changing their terms or challenging their understanding of of how a person demonstrates that they really are a member of God's people. What I mean by that is that in Jesus's day, what for for your average Israelite, the way they understood that you, the way you demonstrated that you were a member of God's people was actually by you know your ethnicity. You just showed you were ethnically Jewish. That you're you're God's people. You're chosen. You're God's people. Or or and then you would demonstrate through the way in which you participated in the rituals of the people of God. The the, the, the dietary restrictions and the, the, the worship patterns that they had and whatnot, and then that, that's what you would do to demonstrate that you are a member of, of God's people. And, and he's kind of shaking things up here because what he seems to be insinuating is that these, these foreigners, Naaman and this Sidonian uh, uh, widow, that there's something about them that is more like the people of God than they are. This is what he's hinting at. He's really just planting a seed here, which then gets fleshed out throughout the Gospel of Luke. This comes to fruition more and more and more. Is that Jesus? He's constantly saying people who were not a member of the Israelite community that they were kind of more God's people than they were in many respects, and challenging them. and And, and what is he doing? Well, what he's saying here is that what demonstrates that you are a member of God's people is one thing. What demonstrates that you're a member of God's people? It's, it's certainly not, you know, your ethnicity, your ancestry. Uh, it's it's not the the religious rituals that you participate in. It's your faith. That's what demonstrates that you're a member of God's people. And and so the same thing applies to us today. I think it's it's easy for people to somehow think, well, yeah, you know, I'm a Christian. I mean, I, you know, I I uh, my, I grew up in a Christian family. You know, I'm Christian and. You know, I'm a Christian, and I demonstrate that by the fact that I go to church, and I demonstrate that by the fact that I read my Bible, and I, I demonstrate that by the fact that I have a fish bumper sticker, uh, not fish the band. That, that, would be, that would be sweet. No, the, the fish, the, the, you know what I'm talking about. You know, I, I have these different uh, things that demonstrate that I'm, that I'm a, a Christian, and Jesus, you say, no, that's, that's actually not what demonstrates that you remember God's people. It's faith. It's that you trust in God. And so they, they, they reject Jesus because of their lack of faith, and this gets them all gets them kind of all riled up. He sort of challenges them, them on that. but, but there's something else that, that emerges here because the way in which he uses this, uh, this Syrian man and this Sidonian woman, he's, he's also getting at, he's also highlighting, their lack of love. What he's showing is that that well, another reason why they reject him is because of their lack of love. Because again, Jesus is planting a seed here by using the Sidonian woman and the and the and and Naaman. Uh, he's he's highlighting the, the fact um, that what it means to be a member of of God's people is not simply to just sit around and wait for God to come and deliver them. He tells two stories about how God demonstrates his power to these these foreigners, how God uses these two prophets to benefit these foreigners. And, And so he's challenging this assumption that, that, you know, what it means to be a member of God's people is, hey, you know, I know God, and he knows me, and boy, I'm just going to hold on until he comes and brings renewal and comes and brings redemption. And I'll even, like, build walls between me and, and those around me, because those, those crazy people out there who, who you know, don't know God, I mean, I just, we got we to gotta build walls and stay away from them, and, and you know, because and let's just wait for God to come. And, and Jesus is saying, no, no, you have forgotten what it means to be the people of God. What it means to be the people of God is not to just sit around and wait for God to come and save you. It's for you to go and be the means of renewal in this world. You're called to love those people outside of your community, outside of your people. And so they don't like this. They don't like this. <laughs> don't like this. And, okay. So here's where the Mother's Day connection comes. You can't wait to hear this, right? When we celebrate mothers, what is it that we're celebrating? What we are celebrating is the way in which mothers give of themselves completely for somebody else. That's what we're celebrating. And that's what we're When somebody becomes, you know, what is motherhood? It's, it's really all about dying to yourself for the sake of somebody else. Is, am I right? I mean, that, that's what we're celebrating. When we celebrate our moms, we're saying, Mom, thank you for, for changing my diapers all those years. Thank you for putting up with my fits. You know, thank you for going easy on me when I bit a chunk of skin out of the arm of Susanna Nagel in first grade. Right, Thank you. Thank you for the ways in which you, you made sacrifices in your life for me. I mean, that's what motherhood is all about. Motherhood is all about dying to yourself for the sake of somebody else. And what we find here, what Jesus is hinting at, what he's pointing at, and this is where I think we can see here, is that, that if, you, if you think about Mother's Day in light of this passage, which maybe nobody's ever done before, I don't know, If you look at Mother's Day in light of this passage, what you realize is that that motherhood is a parable for the Christian life in general. Motherhood is a parable for the Christian life in general, that, that just as a mother knows that at her very core, her identity in being a mother is about giving of herself completely for somebody else, that that's actually at the core of the identity of a Christian motherhood becomes a, a parable for how the, the entire Christian life is, is, is to be lived. And so for those of us, as we look at mothers and we see how they give, their, give of themselves and make sacrifices for their children, we can take that, whether you're a mother or not, and realize that that's, that's a parable, that's an example for how we are called to love those not just as members of our own family, but, but those outside of the family. Because, you know, one of the things we, we need to realize this is going to be really bizarre that I'm mentioning this on Mother's Day, but the very Bible that very much affirms family values and the importance of family and, and caring for your children is also the same Bible where God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And it's the same Bible where Jesus says, if anyone does not hate his children, he cannot be my disciple. You ever seen those on any Mother's Day or Father's Day cards? Of course, does God really mean this? No, this is this is hyperbole, rhetorical hyperbole. And it's it's a way of saying, listen, as important as loving your family is, you need to realize that the calling of God's people goes beyond that. That the sacrificial love that you pour out for your family, absolutely, that is a Christian value, but but that actually points to something even grander, in fact, one of the greatest things that you can do for your children is to teach them the importance of giving their lives not just for their family members but for their enemies. You see motherhood is it 's a parable for the Christian life that just as a mother gives of her life sacrificially for her children that we we are called to give our very selves for for this world for for Naaman and for the Sidonian widow, for those even outside of our community of faith. And I think that the motherhood serves as a parable It shows us not simply how we are to live as Christians, but I think it also gives us a little glimpse of why. And here's what it is. I have never, I have never met a mother who said, you know, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't had not I've never met a mother who said, you know, I wish I hadn't poured out so much of my life for my kids. I've never heard a mother say that. I mean, certainly I've heard mothers say, I wish I'd done more for them. I wish I'd, you know, handled it differently. You know, maybe I was too distant. Maybe I smothered them. Maybe maybe I I could have done it differently than I did. But I've never heard a mother say, you know, I just wish wish I hadn't loved my kids as much. Never heard them say that. They always say, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I wouldn't trade it for anything. All the things that I gave up to be a mother, it just does not even compare to the joy and sense of of satisfaction that comes from being a mother. And you see, what Jesus wants us to know is that the same thing is true for the Christian life in general. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. He says, whoever wants to be first must be the very last, and the servant of all. And he says, "Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it." He's saying, "Look at the joy that mothers have." I mean, it's it's not easy. Don't be mistaken. It's not like being a mother's easy. It's probably the hardest thing that many women ever have to do. It's the hardest thing, the most challenging thing. But, but he's saying, look at that, and look how what they come to realize is that it leads to joy, that death really does lead to life. Jesus is saying, you look at motherhood, you see that's true for being a mother. That's true for the Christian life in general, that if you will surrender yourself to me, everything to me, if you will give on a daily basis for for your friends, for your neighbors, for your enemies, in a similar way to what you would give for your children, you're gonna discover that leads to life. Of course, why is that? Why is it that dying to yourself leads to life? Well, we get a hint in verse twenty-nine. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. You see, in Luke chapter 4, they want to kill Jesus. But at the end of his ministry, he will give his life for the very people who have wanted to kill him. And on the third day, he rose from the grave. And what that shows us is that the reason why dying to yourself leads to life is because that is at the very heart of who God is. Let's pray. Dear God, (laughs) we thank you for mothers. We thank you for the way in which they give of themselves day in and day out, 24 hours a day sometimes. To love their children. God we thank you for them. And we thank you for the example that they set. The way in which they serve as a parable. For the life that can be found. If we will give ourselves completely to you. God I pray that you would give us the courage. Just as you have given. Each mother in this room. The courage to become a mother. And to go down that hard and challenging road. God I pray that you would give us the courage. To really give of ourselves in sacrificial ways, not just for our family, but for those outside of our community, for, even for our enemies. God, give us the courage and the faith to believe that that really will lead to joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.